You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 52, David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, featuring twins, drugs, vulvas, cervixes, cake, two Jeremy Irons, two Rachel Vices, one dead homeless woman, and gynecological devices for operating on mutant women. Martin. Yes. Separation can be a terrifying thing. Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready for a whole lot of graphic childbirth? Oh man, absolutely. And we're doing Dead Ringers, our second Cronenberg-centric episode after Videodrome, you know, kind of back when Crimes of the Future came out. Yeah, almost a year ago now. Almost a year ago now. It's crazy. Isn't it insane that that movie came out, 12 people watched it, and then it sort of vanished from the public consciousness whatsoever. Like, I feel like we need to shame everybody out there who just let possibly the last work from one of our great genre masters just kind of vanish into the streaming ether. Like, shame on you, motherfuckers. Yep. It, for shame. It's, well, everybody who's in my immediate film fan group, you friends from work and stuff. It's all we talked about until it came out and every one of them saw it. So I think among a certain clientele, it was a big fucking deal and continues to be. But I think for like the, not to be like snooty, the general public, it just kind of went by pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, I don't think my parents were ever going to rush out to watch <laughs> Vigo Mortensen do performative self-surgery. Like that just wasn't going to be up their alley. You yeah. know, they're not going to go to fucking cheesecake factory afterwards and be like, <laughs> Which organ did you like the best that he removed from his body? But no, I mean, it does speak to, and honestly, it's kind of what we're doing with this episode too, is that it, it speaks to how in the glut of the, the streaming kind of content arena, even the greats can put something out and like, you know, it'll appeal to like 20 people. They'll talk about it for a weekend, but even we will like, You're right. yeah. you know, basically be like, okay, move on to the next thing, you know? And it's like crimes of the future is one of the best fucking movies of last year. It's one of the best movies of Cronenberg's whole career. It has fucking Vigo Mortensen and a bond girl, Kristen Stewart, like, and it's, it's classic, you know, body not quite body horror but like the body like kind of gooey icky yeah like classic cronenberg that that Full everybody came to know and love like we even called it like kind of like one of the ultimate cronenberg movies where he's just rolling all of his fascinations up into this like grand summation of his career but it's like oh it came and went but we have a new cronenberg property coming now that is kind of doing the same thing in there's a Dead Ringers remake uh, with Rachel Weiss playing the Mantle Twins, the sex and drug addicted gynecologists who want to push 
women's medicine to the brink. And like, I don't think anybody's fucking talking about this thing. Like it just kind of has come and gone and like Amazon put a six hour, you know, prestige limited series with one of the great actors kind of currently working and nobody. And it's directed by fucking Sean Durkin. Yeah. And Karen Kusama worked on it yeah. and, and the writer of normal people, which was a huge show, like a big success. And well, we talked before about the way that like Amazon will just bury stuff. I mean like only, you know, they're um, terrible at promoting it, their shit. And for me, I think they are, there's obviously the algorithm that knows that I'm going to like this kind of thing. So it showed up, number one on my app on my on my playstation it's like or my apple tv it's like boom you're gonna like like martin there's so many babies heads crowning and vaginas in this this is number one for you so confession um oh god in um you know middle school and high school you would see like the live birth like on video right no um, they would show. We how, didn't do that. Okay. They, well, in Franklin, Indiana, they they got you started early because that's all that's all we're good for. There is um, is fucking and having kids. Um, Philly, they just took you to the hospital. They're like, see that? That's life. Yeah. There you go. Welcome um, to Chester, PA. <laughs> Don't get shot on the way out. All right. Here's a Springsteen record. All right. Um, but I missed both days of health class where they showed the live birth. So I had never seen one until I saw adaptation and I'm watching adaptation in my bedroom after college. And I had never, I didn't know what it looked like. And I was just watching this great fucking movie. And all of a sudden they had that like flash of time and I saw it. And I literally was like spit out my drink. And with this show, it's like what the first five minutes Oh, yeah, there's just, a montage. It's a montage. I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. And it's a lot. They really go for it. They you didn't know, to make did you know it. that's how babies were made before that? I'm or still like, fi- I'm still figuring it out. Okay, that's fair. I'm, it I'm took not, you I'm not even 2002. I'm, I'm not even 40 yet, dude. I don't even fucking know how this shit works. <laughs> did I ever tell you about the, uh, the time teenage mother played at the beginning of the 24-hour no. Zoomed marathon? I believe this was the first year uh, that they ever had it. I, I think in 2006 or 2007. Well... You know, and we've talked about it in our 24-hour marathon episode, um, the way the Exhumed Boys will program stuff is like in the wee hours of the morning, since you're there from noon till noon, Saturday into Sunday, you know, say at like three in the morning, they'll play a movie that you, you're not entirely sure is real. You're like, ah. yeah, like there have been whole films that have played in that block where I've been like, did I hallucinate that like boarding yeah. house? Like. I don't. I didn't think that was a real movie thing. anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Imagine watching that at four in the morning oh, off of no sleep. They did that. I watched it at five p.m. on a Friday. So. But they played Teenage Mother the first year, and like the notorious thing about Teenage Mother is that it's basically like a beach blanket bingo type movie, like fifties movie. But it it's done as almost it doubles as like a reefer madness style, like cautionary, like don't have premarital teenage sex or Mary gets pregnant and all of a sudden she goes from being the popular girl to the pariah. And you're like, ugh. Um, But like the whole thing is super hokey, plays out like kind of the way you think it does. But then all of a sudden, because it was put out, I believe by Jerry Gross, who was like one of the most notorious kind of exploitation hucksters, is that they actually cut in like... Real. Real hospital footage of a woman giving birth and in like unbroken one shot graphic like industrial movie detail. And that played drive-ins and shit back in the day? Yeah, exactly. Wow. Dude, that auditorium, it's like me, 
and like you know 50 sleeping dudes like around all in black t-shirts that say like demons and shit all of a sudden you just hear oh oh my god what the fuck dude and it's just that whole auditorium was suddenly up and watching a baby come out and it's like mm, the sweet miracle of creation at 4 a.m well it, i mean it is something that runs throughout to Cronenberg, it runs throughout his his filmography is like ideas of obviously of birth or forms of birth, you know. And I think specifically about the brood. And there's so much imagery in the brood similar to the film Dead Ringers, specifically the scene where she she's the holy mother who lifts up her her shawl to show all these sacks, you know, growing out. It's this, it's this like mutated form of birth. And to go away from Cronenberg, you have like a movie like Alien, the most obviously famous scene is a birth scene. You know, but with a male, and these things stick with us because we're terrified. Alien, which Cronenberg was set to direct at one. That's point. right. That's right. Yeah, and so it feels you could see him leaning in on that stuff as well. But Dead Ringers, the film, is so interesting because it's the first time I feel like he gets literal with it. It's like I'm gonna actually talk about real OBGYNs based on the real Marcus twins. Um, of, which you because there's two sources basically here yeah. is that there's a pulp novel from the late 70s that was a big hit just called Twins. And it is the epitome of like a dime store paperback, like $300 like paperbacks from hell page turner piece of shit. I read like three quarters of it before this episode and it's like pretty good. It's really well written. It's written by an author named Barry Wood and uh, she teamed up with an actual like medical writer to get the, the scientific parts of like the gynecological life if that's even a real sentence, like kind of down on paper, but it is like straight up late seventies, hot house melodrama horror with the, the mantle twins are basically, I, I think they're called the Harrisons in the book. I can't remember. Um, but they're like incestuous with each other. Like they're jacking each other off, but they're doing all the other stuff too, is they're switching places to pick up women and like they're one's a genius, the one's the drug and, and uh, alcohol kind of addicted, like wild card who's out there partying and, and is just kind of like the, the face to the business while the other one's the brains, let's say. But like, it's just a gnarly little pot boiler, you know, full of like a Southern Gothic, like incestuous side plot and like. Um, lots of sex and violence and, and, but also like weird, like hospital politics and stuff like that. It's, but it, it wasn't what I thought for years. Cause I love dead ringers, yeah. you know, like this is one of my top five Cronenberg movies. And like for the longest time, because it's at least in part based on a true story in Toronto, right? Um, it was actually in, in America, it was in New York. Oh, it was in New York. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So like it's based on real twin gynecologists, um, but also based on this book because this book basically beat him to the punch Yes, because he wanted to make it from the 70s on. And then this book beats him to the punch. So he kind of felt indebted to crediting it. But his is based more on the real gyne- gynecologists that you researched yeah, I went deep last night. Um, I no pun intended. No pun intended. But so yeah, they were called the Marcus Twins. Um, the story ran in the New York Times, nineteen seventy-five. Okay, and that's when their bodies were discovered. Um, and the book Twins is like seventy-seven or seventy-eight. I want to say. Yeah, so not too far after. And 
it was there are all kinds of thoughts about how they died, um, mm-hmm. about like suicide pacts or one killed the other. Um, but based on all the research and leading up to when they died, it's very similar to a lot of the, the last parts of the film of Cronenberg's film of these guys were, they were at the forefront of like OBGYN, like technology and they mostly worked with rich women. So like right. if you, if you went to another, um, like Upper East Side types. Yeah. Like, r- like rich New York, um, socialites who would go to other fertility doctors and they couldn't get pregnant and they would go to the Marcus twins and they did. So they were like, they were like miracle workers and, but they were, um, there's all these great, I read this other whole article that pulled from like, there's a, there's a nonfiction book as well about them that goes deep into the Marcus twins. But a fellow student said, quote, they were schizoid when they talked to you. And most of the time they didn't talk to anyone just to one another. You got the distinct impression that responses were artificial, that they didn't really have emotions. That other people did, but were aping others emotions, trying to imitate them. And so it's cool that you see that obviously Cronenberg did his research about what these people were like. These guys seem a lot less charming than the way that, uh, that Jeremy Irons portrays them both, but their names were um, Cyril and Stuart. And Stuart was um, Elliot. He was the outgoing one. He was the one glad-handing. And Cyril was the quiet, kind of emotional one. And similar to the film, um, Cyril at one point did fall in love. He was married. And they were separated for a while. I think uh, Stuart was over in Europe or something. And when they kind of came back together their drug use kind of blossomed um, together and they, they were living together in this apartment, like on the, on the Upper East side. And they started like um, things, weird things happened at the hospital. There were some injuries. Um, they came looking shaky, like looking like not, I think one of them passed out at one point. And then they, I think this is all not at their own clinic, but at the actual hospital. So a lot of shit went down they were not seen for a while. And then um, the story goes, so Stuart died first based on the autopsy. And uh, Marcus, uh, sorry, um, Cyril didn't die for at least a few days. And the thought is, um, so Cyril died of Nambutal overdose is the thought. Um, they were using all kinds of different pills. Like, like in the film, it's uppers and downers and, and all kinds of like, you know, designer drugs. And the thought is that Cyril just starved himself to death sitting next to his brother and then died. And they were almost like a dog dying by its master's side. Yeah. So that's my diatribe, but it was a really fascinating. Like I read it a couple hours last night and a lot of it overlaps pretty closely with what Cronenberg did. Yeah. I mean, right down to the romantic subplot to where a woman always comes in between the twins because that happens in the book too. Um, And then it happens Famously in in Cronenberg's movie to where she, an actress, comes in, uh, played by Genevieve Bujold. She's great. And she, who's absolutely amazing, um, comes in between, you know, Jeremy Irons' twins. And that's where the real fracture and friction begins between them. But, I mean, I guess to take it back to how these are all kind of telling the same story, one of the things we talked about when Amaz we had heard about this being like, there's a Dead Ringers series? Okay, starring Rachel Weiss. Neat, okay. weird. But it's like, what reasoning was there <laughs> to basically mine this from the, the IP vaults? Because like I don't think anybody's really clamoring for a redo 
of like Cronenberg's big, I guess first big dramatic movie, which is fair. Yeah, like when the he, fly is close, but it's more gooey. Well, and, I mean, and, it's yeah. when he breaks from genre. Yeah, it's like he, you know, makes uh, Scanner or I'm sorry, Shivers, Rabid, um, The Brood, Videodrome, or Scanners, Videodrome, Dead, Dead Zone, Dead Zone. Um, and then the fly, the fly, and they're all genre movies. Oh, and Fast Company, the race car movie. Yeah, too. that was seventy-seven. Yeah, yeah, that's that's earlier in Canada. Good movie with William Smith. I, I like that movie. Um, I'm a completionist, so I had to see it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, like that first run is straight up genre stuff. It's horror. It's sci-fi. It's known. You know, he becomes like a, a brand unto himself because his movies have this very chilly, icy quality. He's very much like, you know, a scientist, like ha- keeping all of his characters at kind of an arm's length while he observes them through this weird, like cinematic microscope. And gooey gore. And lots of gooey gore. He's covered in Fangoria. Scorsese interviews him in yep. Fangoria at one point. Thinks he's awesome. He like, loved Cronenberg. Yeah. amazing. Well, you can find... On that Videodrome disc, there's a roundtable yep. like interview that's like John Carpenter, Landis, and John him. Landis, him. I feel like there's someone else. It's just the three of it's them. It's just the three mm-hmm. of them. But Carpenter's the one who's like, that guy's better than all of us combined. Yep. Like, and Landis is like talking to Malamin and kind of being a fucking idiot. Like and, usual. Like usual, And Cronenberg's yeah. just sitting there like in his weird you know, professorial kind of state talking that very calm intellectual voice, but like dead ringers starts the next phase of his career. And in particular, a a collaboration with Jeremy Irons, because he would make not just dead ringers, but M butterfly after this too, which I think is one of the, the undervalued entries into Cronenberg's filmography. We actually watched that together for the last episode. It's so good. It's tremendous, but it's, he, in my opinion, as somebody who's just been, because this is the most important filmmaker to me of my entire life. Like, yeah. it's just, you know, De Palma's the great stylist that I've always been attracted to. But, like, Cronenberg's the one whose movies have spoken to me on, like, an intellectual and, like, philosophical level the most and have, like, evolved the most. Even as I've gotten older, I've pulled even more from them as we go along. And, I, I mean... Because to me, that's what the great movies like really do is that like in every stage of your life, you find a way to reevaluate them to where yeah. like all of a sudden they meet. Like The Fly means something totally different to me at 40 than it did at 14 when I first saw it. And it was just a cool fucking monster movie with Jeff Goldblum. Now I watch that movie and think it's one of the great relationship films yeah. of all time. Best divorce movie of all time. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it shatters me every time I watch it to where I'm just a puddle of tears because it's... It's not just that. It's also like when we when I saw him speak at Beyond Fest and he referred to it as an opera, like that's how he first envisioned the fly. And especially with that Howard Shore, like bombastic, bombastic score in the background, it totally makes sense because it becomes this uh, biological tragedy that you watch play out at like maximum melodramatic volume. Like it's just a tremendous movie. But now he breaks away from the gore and stuff and he kind of starts doing movies that are based around in my estimation, his other great 
fascination, which is identity. Yeah, hundred percent. He's always been about and that's throughout that's throughout everything. Yeah, you know. But I mean, yeah. it really takes center stage from Dead Ringers to M Butterfly. Naked Lunch yeah, is I mean, like Jesus, inc- all about like retaining identity throughout the creative process. Crash. History, violence, and Eastern promise is hardcore. Are just dead on. Like yeah. it's not even subtext at that point. It's literally just about a guy becoming another guy. Yeah, the you undercover, know? and then of course he goes even to crimes of the future. Yeah, his idea of him being this undercover guy in the art world. You know. Yeah. Well, and uh, I mean, we don't like the movie, but Maps to the Stars. Yep. You know, you also have actors trying to portray like their own family members and live out like these pieces of their legacy that they're known for because they're Nepo babies, essentially. So it's like, he's just fascinated with this idea of like, what makes me, me? And how do I retain that even as I evolve like throughout time? And Dead Ringers is like, what makes these people, these twins who almost talk in synchronicity with one another, what makes them unique individuals individual human beings yeah because it's um i I strangely rewatched dark city the other night the proyas film which i like a lot Um, hasn't aged well for me i just i hadn't seen it in years and i still adore it but there's a similar idea too of like like a blade runner it's like is identity just memory right is there something more to the human soul or identity beyond what's happened before and i think what cronenberg does is a lot of times it's also about like the body, you know, is identity in the body? Is it in the mind? Um, and I think this film, like you said, in particular is so about when you have someone else in your life and the way that I think beyond twins, people who can just like, you start to, um, your, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, codependency, you know, you, and your identity start to like melt together and couples do that all the time too, you know, and they start taking on each other's qualities and this one is such a sad one because you have compared to the show, and I really we'll get to the show as well. I feel like the Mantle twins in the film are they're not monsters. Um, I think they go further with them being kind of terrible in Dead Ringers, like they're almost sociopathic. And maybe it's just the charm of of Jeremy Irons, but specifically Beverly. I've always considered them vampiric. Because they live in this old tower in the sky. They are detached kind of from the rest of society and humanity. They sustain themselves in a very particular fashion that's like, like they monitor each other's food and everything. It's just like, and they, they almost, they're like in a parasitic fashion, they kind of feed off of each other's energies the whole time, right down to like when, you know, Beverly wants to have sex with someone. Elliot has to go get them for him. And then they swap places, which is a a dramatic point that carries on from like the books, like all the way to like the David Cronenberg movie. And then the series itself, like that's one thing that they always hit on because it's, it's such a slimy move, man. I had twins um, in my, I grew up with, and they did that. Now, not in really? the, yeah, so not in the, um, Martin, what the, how do you have these really weird personal anecdotes for like all of this <laughs> stuff? I need to hear more about these twins. Uh, well, um, so they didn't do anything nefarious. It was more like they would switch classes. 
Oh, okay. And so just to fuck with the teacher. And and they're identical. They wouldn't swap each other out like mid-blowjob or anything. They would not. They okay. would not, no. And and one is one is gay and one is not, so I don't think that happened. Um and there were complications. Yes. But uh super cool guys, but they told me that yeah, sometimes they just like get bored and and they if you know them, they look very different. Like one has a much fuller face, one has a slimmer face, all that shit, right? But like most teachers don't pay that close of attention. And so they would be like they would just go fuck around for day, all right, you're me today, they switch shirts. Yeah. And they had kind of the same style anyway. And, uh, but yeah, so that's, and I had other friends that it's kind of a thing, you know, it's kind of a game that like, well, we can pull one over on people. If you're that fucking identical, you know, you know, from a filmmaking perspective, Cronenberg tries to get to that idea of like identity and how they, they are identical people. Um, but the way he like actually puts it on screen is pretty like, we always talk about his stuff like when you when you have the schism between horror and the more dramatic stuff later everybody talks about how like he left special effects behind and he stopped using bladders and goop and and gore and everything but like Dead Ringers has one of the greatest special effects of his career because he uses this very unique rotoscoping technology yep. to have both mantle twins on screen at the same time and then Jeremy Irons through his performance and just little ticks and and the way they dress and like stuff that you were talking about with these twins that you knew like he's able to like differentiate each other and I think this the movie does it in a much more clever way than the show does because the show like blatantly is like one wears their hair down and one wears their hair up we're like it's almost entirely actorly choices with with the Irons representation of the Mantle twins because like it's such a full performance and like Cronenberg is putting it all out there in a way that like nobody ever really talks about his direction in terms of like flash or or long tracking shots or real you know technical like verisimilitude or what have you but like here like yeah he's shooting it like his his usual like easy setups cold detached kind of lens but like the fucking show-offy special effects to get this performance in frame is awesome yeah i watched a behind the scenes thing they used all the um because they had to use computer controlled cameras too right. to is that one shot they were motion controlled right yeah 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 computer motion so computer controlled so like star wars exactly the miniatures and so they would do it over and over again and just have him in different places and you would play off of like body doubles and stuff yep kind of like the um uh whatchamacallit in um uh, social network. Oh yeah, yeah. But that the, that was you know he had he had um, Josh Spencer whatever his name is and they would do the they did a lot more facial um, whatever like mapping for that. But I always thought there were two army hammers. Me too. When for I, the longest I, I thought time. they were twins. Yeah. Um, and you watch it closely, you can see in the background it's like some pretty early early kind of face replacement stuff. Dude, it still looks fucking good. Yeah. Though. Well, the one scene in particular is when they're on like, when they're on the. Um, the rowboat. Uh, the rowboat. That's the one where it's like very like you see yeah. Josh Spence, and I'm not trying to rip. It's like, but also Fincher knows where your your attention is. You know, Fincher's such a a master craftsman and like a a real stickler for detail that even the and is a tech guy, yeah. kind of like Cameron in a weird way, like right down to like the the digital cameras and panic room, and then like 
the aging like CGI stuff and Benjamin Button yep. and then the face replacement and social network is like a, it's kind of similar to the Dead Ringers thing is like he's using special effects but to like bring characters alive as opposed to just wow you. It's invisible, right? It's the idea exactly. of the special effects invisible and like I was watching this, you know, I haven't seen it as many times as you but probably my fifth or sixth time and you just totally forget like you just you completely and it's a mixture again. You said the filmmaking, the special effects of, and then just performance. I mean, Jeremy Irons. I don't. I can't think of a better performance from him that asked more of him. There's an argument that this is the greatest performance of the '80s. I think. I think that like you, like obviously people are going to be like De Niro and Raging Bull. That's like the one that's usually mentioned the most. Yeah. But like for me, Irons doing this because he's playing two distinct people and like he's doing so in a way that's so in like tune with Cronenberg's frequency. Like he's so detached. He's so intellectual and like but again, he's almost monstrous in a way because of his stillness and his his alien nature that he brings to the mantle twins like they're unknowable in a way. Yeah, well, he also loves men with like these kind of bony body, bony sinewy bodies. I think that look like him. They look like him. I think specifically like James Woods and Idiodrome and then this. And there's that shot where um well, he's, Stephen Lack in uh, scanners who shows up here too yeah, as the as, artist yeah. who makes the still not a good uh, actor <laughs> no not a great actor bad actor but, but he's he's an but artist though he's a visual artist he also life. yes yeah. he was a visual artist in toronto i believe yeah. i believe he's still alive too but like he also has the trademark long face i think he was also a model maybe he's a handsome guy yeah, yeah. so but he loves that uh kind of look what's his name art um oh um from uh the brood yeah um shit Art Hindle? Art Hindle, yeah. yeah. Wow, full I don't know where sized, that came from. Yeah. Full size Peter Dinklage. Like is what he kind of looks like. But he fits in the mold too. He likes these dark, uh, brooding, but very gaunt, long walking. faces. Walking I mean, being is, one of the perfect yeah, dead, also like, a vampire. Ones. Yeah, very vampiric. Yeah. That's the thing. That's almost becomes like his favorite movie monster are these monsters that feed off other people. Like, you know, rabid. You know, it's all about a woman who becomes the first technological vampire and feeds on people with a, a fucking, you know, orifice under her armpit. Did you see the reference to that? No. In um the in the show? No. I think it's like episode three and they're talking about all the things they can do with technology, like, oh, or you know, grow something in their armpit. And I like was like, Oh my like, oh my god, there's no way that was on accident. Yeah. You no, know, that was completely that's an alley oop yeah, right there. Yeah, for sure. But this is also when Cronenberg continues to bring his regular collaborators yeah. like Howard Shore and Denise, his yep. sister to do all the costuming Shore's score is very oh. classical and beautiful and melancholy. Like you, you're already dropped into kind of your casual observation about this movie as you're like, I haven't seen this movie as many times as you have. I should mention that this is like a once a year rewatch for me because I just like being sad, man. And this this movie is so fucking sad. It, I find it really unpleasant, and I, I think it's a, like... <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I think it's a masterpiece. I do believe, and every time I watch it, I am in awe. And I always, like you said, I, I always find something new to like about it, um, as, with most, as with most Cronenberg films. Um, 
the one I watch the most is Videodrome. I watch that like probably twice a year. Um, I think that the because, flies me. Yeah, the flies just the one I've I've watched so many times. And those are dreary as fuck too, but they're definitely more fun than Dead Ringers, <laughs> you know. And that, I think specifically, what he really captures for the last like forty minutes in particular is a realistic depiction of someone losing their mind. Like I, I think it really it. it and it gets you in that headspace and it right. like, like Videodrome does right. Of like when reality starts to melt around you. And I think of that scene in particular of Beverly tries to, when he's still, he's trying to go in detox and he uses their retractor on a woman's vagina. And the next scene, you know, Elliot's like, you know, you can't use that in it's, that's for like surgery. And he's like, her vagina was all wrong. And you just start to see things crack. Yeah. And it he's just losing it. It's losing it. And, as, and I really like the show. Um, my main issue, if I have one with it, is that, to your point, too, about the, the hair being down versus up, I think that they tried to make them too different. I thought they made Beverly... Like, you see Rachel Weisz having a good time being like, I love eating cheeseburgers, I love fucking, all these things. And and uh, Bev is much more, like, meek, like, most of the film. And most of the show. I don't and know not, that not, it's not, not that meek. different, because Irons' is Beverly is very meek. Like um, at the start, yes, but I think again as they go as they go on, they get closer. They they start to blend more, especially by the end of the of the film. But I think the the Vice show definitely puts it off as like one's kind of the good one and one's kind of the bad one. Is that's the kind of twist you get with the show, and I'm cool with that. But it just I it had more of a kind of monster movie kind of thriller ending of like I'm still here, and I'm like. Eh. It just it didn't land quite right for me. Well, and I think that's one of the things we talk about with Cronenberg's movie too, though, is that even though that it's his first, like let's say, big departure from making straight up genre movies, there's still like an air of unpleasant, not necessarily thriller, but almost like horror movie, especially to like the last twenty minutes, because you're kind of on the edge of your seat, being like, "How fucking dark is this gonna go?" Like, and it goes. At when they start breaking out surgical tools on one another, it goes as dark as fucking possible. In the, one of the most Cronenbergian scenes of his whole career, when they essentially decide one's going to end the other's life, the way they do it is disgusting and trademark Cronenberg. Yep, it's right down to hearing those bones crack as he opens him up. Oh, and then there, the scene we've you were you know saying it earlier, I think off mic, but like. One of the saddest things that, and I think scariest things that Cronenberg's done is that following scene is when, when Bev wakes up and he's kind of like, I had the weird, most horrible dream. He's about to say that I killed you. And you're as an audience member, you're like, oh shit. Like, I don't think even as an audience member, you realize how high he was. You're like, oh, that's what they wanted. He's like, no, he was just so out of it. And it does, there's that sh- in the background, you see. Elliot just opened up. Yeah. It's like kind of out of focus, but it's borderline his, crucified. Just, yeah. His chest is just like ripped Split. apart, you know, and like just stuff's everywhere. And then, you know, irons as Bev stands up. It's like, Ellie, Ellie, oh, like, God. and it's just his, his true love. His brother is dead and he killed him. And it's just really fucking sad. And it's one of those lonely shots that Cronenberg's ever filmed, I think. Just this guy in his underwear with his brother splayed open with just fucking cans and shit. 
anywhere. Yeah, that they've created this cave of yeah. filth as they inject each other like with like epidurals. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it, it reminds me of um, when Seth Brundle yeah. quarantines himself off when he really starts to change into the fly and then his laboratory basically becomes his nest. Yep. They do this of like something almost to a greater extreme in Dead Ringers to, to the trash and how unkempt the entire place becomes but then by the time they're like so high and serving each other birthday cake it's our birthday i don't want some orange pop i want ice cream and you're like what the fuck man this is like it's so sad and they're feeding each other birthday cake with the candles with their hands and crying and it's just but honestly this is this is that big fat sad that I sign up for because I just, I love every second of it because not only again, is it some of the most Cronenberg Cronenberg has ever Cronenberg. It's like, <laughs> like irons is so like, he makes you feel for these aliens. He makes you feel for these vampires who are like disgusting people who like you've watched one literally commission Stephen Lack's artist character to create a line of instruments to operate on mutant women because in a drug addicted haze, he becomes like completely fascinated by the notion of, of women having vaginas that are destroyed and have like needing special instruments to work on them. And those instruments that fucking Stephen Lack makes are terrifying when well, they're pure. I mean, they're, if I just, if I had to say what's an image to show a person who has never seen Cronenberg before, Right. I would be like, that wasn't too gross that shows like his design. It would be those instruments. Yeah. That metallic, cold, they're, a- they're alien, they're insect-like as well. Which they is, look like you know, alien probes. Yeah. Well, and there's something I wanted to ask you about. I, I wrote it down watching the show and then rewatching the movie. Is a subplot of the movie and a subplot of the show is the the artist in their life. So with Stephen Lack in the film, you have this, He is he is commissioned to make these, right? And later in the film, you find out that he has made more molds for himself, and now is like has them out as art pieces, right? In his in his um, gallery, he's going to make a lot of fucking money. And the same thing that Greta does in the show, it's their you know their, their live in nanny or their live in um, uh, maid, who turns out has been like making an art show kind of based on them, mixed with the death of her mother and childbirth. But I wonder, specifically the way Cronenberg handles it, is it like a self indictment of like an artist watch using like people falling apart for their own purposes. Like almost like I'm making a film about the Marcus twins who are real people or the way that artists are kind of vampires in that way of like, well, you are obviously fucking insane, but I could do very well with this. And like Greta is almost culpable watching what happened with them, but just for her own purposes, taking their shit and making an art installation out of it. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, it's what Crimes of the Future is entirely about. It's yeah. literally a, a concept that he's wrestled with his whole life is this idea that, like, to be an artist, you still have to work in a commercial space. Yeah. So that sometimes will mean compromising your, your moral values and, like, selling out and stealing somebody else's work or what have you. It's like, I do think the one thing about Cronenberg is that so many of his movies, and I think that's what makes them so, like, endlessly rewatchable. And like I said earlier, like, 
evolves throughout your life if you're like a real fan of his and really like trying to analyze what he's trying to do um he's always really self-aware and self-reflexive and his movies are about him in one way or another i mean the brood is literally about his divorce yeah totally you know um shivers and uh rabid are all about you know 70s fear of uh parasitic disease and sex you know a lot of people accused him when the fly came out of it being an early aids metaphor and he's just like that's not what i'm into like he's like these are just concepts in my head that haunt me and that i bring out because these are the fears that i kind of wrestle with i'm afraid of my body falling apart i'm afraid of it betraying me or becoming infected by like a disease that i don't understand or like mutating into another creature entirely that you you find in your own right completely unknowable he's just he's always not necessarily self-indicting but definitely like he holds the mirror up to himself the whole time and doesn't always like what he sees. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And I, I think too, there's a running thing in the film of dead ringers where like, uh, Ellie doesn't respect what, um, Claire does. Like there's a whole thing about, they have a conversation about art where he's kind of like, I never saw the point, you know, it's this thing of like science versus art kind of seems to be a push and pull in Cronenberg too. Um, but they're artists in their own way. I mean, the fucking like they're, uh, pure Cronenberg, their, their gallery where they do their actual surgery and their fucking red robes. Talk about vampires, right? Yeah. I mean, just it's the like, great bit of design that everybody remembers from the original yeah. dead ringers. And like, and they pull for the show that they pull completely for the show. Those bright ass reds that all, I almost feel like Francis Ford Coppola stole a little bit of that for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Like that's always been one-to-one in my head because there's such a a hard use of red in that movie too. And a lot of those capes look very similar. That's great. And I think, or the armor that he wears in the beginning. Exactly. Like that that red. Mm -hmm. I just rewatched that. What a fucking movie that is. I got that 4K. Really? Beautiful. Oh, I got to watch that. dude. It's so fucking good. But yet, it's also, like, to take it back to, like, the idea of, like, Cronenberg using a lot of his movies to almost, like, write his weird autobiography Yeah, is Naked Lunch. You know, originally, Cronenberg was a science student in, I believe, the University of Toronto, and then he became an English student. He wanted to be a writer like William S. Burroughs, um, but he never could quite nail the being an author element of it. Like he just didn't think that his prose ever really stacked up. So he did the next best thing. He became a filmmaker, but he made a film about one of his greatest inspirations throughout his life, William S. Burroughs. And like, it's like a hybrid of like biography and junkie and naked lunch and queer and it goes into inner zone and you have the mugwumps and all those Cronenbergian like inventions. Cause it was unadaptable before that people, exactly. they are like, it's impossible to make, but Cronenberg decided to make it one of the ultimate like self reflections of like, this is me struggling with the creative process and what it means to me and, and what it means as a, it represents uh, for my identity as a person, you know, and it's, he intertwines himself with one of his heroes. 
Yeah. And just, yeah, the, the insanity that, that comes upon you when you're a writer in particular, you know, and, or an artist. And I love inner, inner zone is just the creative place, right? It's where, it's where he goes. It's the imagination. Yeah. It's where you lose your mind. Yeah. And as a, you know, you and I have both written stuff and there are times where you're really deep in it and you're like, I think I'm going fucking crazy. Well, it's like you the know? whole mantra of the movie is exterminate all rational thought. Yeah, that is my philosophy. But I've always struggled with Naked Lunch a little bit. I like it as an intellectual exercise. And visually, I actually oh. think it's one of his strongest movies. All of those like deep brown tweeds, the tweeds, fucking Roy Scheider emerging from another body at one point. Like there's a lot of cool fucking shit in that movie. But at the same time, it's such an intellectual exercise that, like, I, on revisit, will sometimes struggle with staying engaged with it completely. Because it's not necessarily entertaining. It's one of my favorites, actually. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and I, I totally get what you're saying. And I... I think I came to it at the right time. It was when I was going that big binge when I was in grad school. I should also say that I'm not a beat generation guy. And I'm not really either, but I, I like the whole aesthetic. I love the noir sure. aesthetic. And I love the kind of pulp novel design of Inner Zone and the whole It's the whole, so gorgeous. And all the spy stuff again that Cronenberg loves, the idea of being undercover that he brings back for like well, the crimes weird, of the future. The weird tangents too. Yeah, the the undercover element of having of being an different artist. identities. <laughs> um, yeah, but the I like the weird tangents though in it too. Like the whole scene with Ian Holm where they start talking telepathically. Yep. It's just like, what the fuck is even going on here? I mean, it's also a movie where a, a typewriter grows a giant anus and then gets it rimmed with cocaine, basically oh, or heroin. It's such a fucking strange film. Yeah, it's it's just one, and I think it's a film too that I don't quite understand fully. Like you said, it's an intellectual um, exercise. So I feel I feel like when I watch it, I'm trying to kind of break apart the mystery box a little bit more. And I think it is of a cohesive piece that all makes sense. Um, but to your point, though, it's not the one that I pop on when I want to kind of have like fun. Like I generally like Videodrome is dark, but I like watching that movie. Same. Like the I fly. like being in those worlds as fucked up. As, and, and when I'm really just want to have a good time, I know it's not one of your favorites, but Scanners. I like the whole spy setup. I've been coming around yeah. on it with later revisits. I still think it's overvalued by a lot of fans in yeah. his body of work, but I like it more. I especially like it more in the post MCU era because it's almost like yep. a glimpse into what a Cronenberg superhero movie would kind of look like, which is a, a neat thought exercise in this day and age. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Yeah, it's it's definitely. I almost like like it not even as a Cronenberg film. It's kind of a fun, like it is a fun kind it's of just action. It's a fun action. Like there's a great that car chase. I love the scene um, at the artist's. Uh, artist barn where the shotgun wielding people. Oh my God. That um, shootout is so fucking is good. So amazing. And then, I mean like Michael Ironside is, is really on one in this movie. Like maybe my favorite Ironside role probably. Um, I don't know. Starship troopers. I mean, it's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. I well, just saw a great Ironside role. Um, have you seen Blackberry yet? I have not. Since we're on the topic of Canadian yeah. movies, Dude, you gotta see. Dude, I heard she's great from you and other people. It's very, um, it's weird because it's from the guy Matt Johnson who mm -hmm. made uh, the Dirties, that kind of faux 
uh, found footage movie about school shooters. Yeah. Um, and then he made Operation Avalanche, the one about faking a moon landing, essentially, right, yeah. which is a pretty cool movie. But he makes almost like he exists almost entirely in like the mockumentary kind of form. And there's this great interview with him I listened to last night on The Big Picture with Sean Fennessy where he talks about, you know, like D.A. Pennebaker and the Maisels brothers and stuff. And like he's a real student yeah. of documentary filmmaking in a way that I thought he was just kind of a weird outsider, yeah. a Canadian <laughs> funny guy. Because he's also the guy who made Nirvana the band the show too. Um, but like, because he just has this real goofy Canadian nice guy energy. But like he was very, very thoughtful and insightful. And he even talked about how this is like his first like quote unquote real movie to where like he's working with a crew, he's working with real actors, he has to make his days on time. But like he even talked about how like they shot this entire movie in like long lenses and everything so it felt like almost National Geographic work because the entire film is about the foundation of BlackBerry. Yeah. And which became the biggest cell phone in the world for like five seconds before the iPhone comes along and it stars Jay Baruchel as one of the founders of the company. And then Glenn fucking Howard. He's awesome, dude. He's, you want to talk about vampiric? Like he floats through this movie, like capitalist Dracula and just destroys people. It's almost like if a hybrid of the Alec Baldwin character from Glengarry, Glenn Ross, Mm or the McConaughey character from Wolf of Wall Street kind of merged into one demon and he just floated around. Like he literally, I think he screams almost every line in the movie. Like he just comes through and bulldozes these dudes, but it should be in a perfect world at the end of this year, he would be up for an Oscar. It's the best performance I've seen this year thus far. It's completely electrifying and it's awesome because it's fucking Dennis from Always Sunny and you're like, I didn't know that you, you that could do this, <laughs> yeah. man. Like, it's a real deal performance. And it's fucking hilarious, too. But he does something similar. And Johnson talks about Cronenberg, too, about how what he wanted to do with this movie is basically make this very observational, almost mock, funny mockumentary about the rise of this piece of technology that has since expired. Like we know this has an yeah. end to the story because we don't use it anymore. Versus but, air is about something that's still making four exactly. billion dollars. And this is a actually year. a great flip side to air because where air is somewhat lionizing the dudes. Oh from yeah. Nike, they're heroes. Yeah. They're heroes in it. These guys are straight up villains. Everybody in Blackberry is completely unlikable, except for one character who Johnson plays, and um, are just these like blood sucking Canadian freaks who are pure hucksters and climbing to the top with like this thing that they know is kind of a piece of shit, but they're selling anyway. And like, it's a it's a great flip side to air. It's a great flip side to Social Network. Um, and it's a great, especially Steve Jobs, the mm. Danny Boyle, Aaron Sorkin movie that they made together where again, Sorkin's kind of lionizing, 
you know, Steve Jobs and to another degree, like Mark Zuckerberg, too. Like he obviously admires yeah. the advancements that they brought into our life and to communication and technology where like Johnson is very clearly being like, these guys are fucking pieces of shit and complete yeah, let's goons. be real about it. And like, it's kind of interesting because he takes on, he talks about the storytelling, how he didn't want to focus in on the tech of it because it would become Cronenbergian because we had a relationship with it and it would become about like the way that we become biotechnical people. And I was just listening to him be like, my man's just like dropping quotes about D.A. Pennebaker and fucking David Cronenberg. And suddenly, like, I'm a fan of yours for life. <laughs> and also, like, Cronenberg's like influence just continues to like ripple through Canadian cinema. Fuck yeah. You can't you can't deny it. He's one of the godfathers, man. But yeah, I think like it's weird. I revisit the sad ones of his. I guess that's not weird for me, but like I revisit like Dead <laughs> Ringers. I revisit Crash a lot. Yeah. Um, that's unpleasant for me too. <laughs> I hadn't watched that I think in that's forever. unpleasant for everybody. I hadn't watched that in forever though, and rewatching it with you for on 4K for uh when we did the crimes feature was awesome. Like do, that do was you great. think after Belly tanked so hard that that would go over well as a screening at Absolutely the bar? not. We yeah, are we can't do that one. We are going back to 80s fun, my friend. That is <laughs> Our Empire Strikes Back screening completely fucking killed. That killed. What movie also is just perfect. Man, watching that and Star Wars back to back on May the 3rd and May the 4th together was pretty awesome. Yeah. But yeah, I watched the sad ones more than like say history of violence or Eastern promises, which are much more traditional thriller, like genre yeah. thriller action movie storytelling. Uh, again, don't know what that says about me, but like I'm fine, completely standing dead ringers for the rest of my life. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I'm more in the, and I don't mind obviously dark heavy shit, but I do like his more, they're all fucked up in their way. Um, but like Eastern Promises is one I watch quite a bit. You like um, the ones that are more entertaining. Yeah, that's a really... They're in- less like intellectual exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and a film that he he was going to do a Robert Ludlum adaptation of the Matarese Circle. Ooh, I like that book. And it, Yeah, and I read it just because I heard he was working on it. And it was going to be Denzel Washington and Tom Cruise were the two leads. It was going to be a big fucking, like Tom, I think was going to be the, um, the Russian and Denzel was going to be the American and also about identity and about like being on opposite sides. He was going to lean into that. And again, a full on actual spy. Movie. Well, I mean, all Robert Ludlum move like books are kind of hinge around like a guy gets amnesia yep. and is really a super assassin or has an, or has a, guys, a double. Yeah. Yeah. There's doubles secret agents two guys are flip sides of the coin it's actually kind of remarkable that Cronenberg hasn't made a Ludlum style like spy thriller because that would be totally up his alley much more so than like say Beverly Hills Cop which he almost directed at some point he's like dance around everything you know and but he I mean he's that kind of guy it's like Lynch too like he was up for everything in the 80s yeah it just shows that it was also just that time period that was like these guys were just the working directors and these projects kind of floated to everybody. And like us saying he almost directed Beverly Hills cop. Like he may have taken a meeting and was like, eh, I don't know guys. That's like, like Lynch I like Return. Eddie Murphy too, but I'm David Cronenberg. Lynch for return of the Jedi was the same thing. He's like, I don't think I even had a meeting. Yeah. It's all these, like, these what ifs it's like, yeah, like they probably considered everybody, yeah. you know? 
You want to get to the show, Dead Ringers, now? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Talking about Dead Ringers, the 2023 remake? Yeah. Remix? Remix. Remix. I think that's what we settled on before we started recording because one of the earliest comparison points that I sold you on watching the show on because <laughs> I had read it was like Hannibal. Is that people were like, oh, it's kind of like that's this heightened, say. elevated world where these two twin psycho gynecologists are navigating and just given birth to like babies left and right and then snorting drugs and whatever but it's all like very lush and melodramatic and everything and i was like oh okay i'll check that out you think it's more like hannibal than i do i don't 100 percent agree with the comparison so a couple reasons um and it, it may be kind of hard to like break this out of my brain because like you told me that so i went in with that in mind versus like coming to it myself I do believe watching it, I probably still would have come to that conclusion because of a few things. First of all, like you said, it's a remix. And, and it feels, at least narratively, the way Hannibal took the elements of Manhunter, of Silence of the Lambs, of Red Dragon, and just mixed them up. And, and then uh, sorry, added and, its and, own and, and Hannibal, sorry. Yeah. Um, and, and mixed them up. And did its own thing, had its own total vibe. You know, um, Mads Mikkelsen, very much like his own Hannibal Lecter. He's not doing anything that anyone else had done before. It's pretty much a completely different character. I actually think it's my favorite Will Graham, too. Well, because you also get more time with him. So, I, it yeah. might, I, I mean, he's definitely better than fucking Edward Norton. Let's just, that's pretty clear. Uh, I do, I think that. I, mean, I, I love the kind of stoicism of William, William Peterson. Peterson and the way he's like being a prop for Michael Mann and all those shots. But I agree. I mean, like fucking um, what's uh, Hugh Dancy is amazing. Yeah. Um, and and very it nuanced. adds the whole like Brian Fuller homoerotic element to their relationship. Dude, the end of season two, when it full on yep. becomes a De Palma movie, it becomes like raising Cain at the end with like people falling in slow motion and shit. What an hour of television that was. Like, I remember that just blowing my brain out of the back of my skull. Cause you came to it after I did. I remember, cause I told I watched you it for way later. Yeah. Cause I saw it when it like, so I had season one had come out. My friend was like, it's the show. It's the show. It's the show. And I'm like, eh, I would watch the first episode. I didn't love it. For, I was not immediately hooked the first time I saw it. I was very similar. I watched 
the show on premiere night. Yep. That's why I did it too, yeah. Oh, this is interesting, and kind of watched the first four or five episodes as they initially aired, and you know what it was too much like in my head? Millennium. And I had lived through Millennium. And I Millennium. love that show. I like it too, yeah. but I was watching it being like, oh, okay, like I've seen this before, this is cool, but then because it was doing kind of like, it was taking like little side characters and asides and stuff from the Thomas Harris books and then fleshing them out into their own plot lines and everything. And like, I, I admired that as, as somebody who loved the movies and like grew, like devoured those books growing up. Like I appreciated that as a fan, but it felt too much like a case of the week type show when and it that's starts what out for sure. was and then it evolves i didn't give it time to evolve into its own thing and kind of fell off and then i watched it like 10 years later or whatever and i was like oh shit i totally missed out on this this is fucking great especially season two when there are still cases of the week but they're so extreme and crazy the guy who has the outfit of the bear with hydraulics oh my god is like fucking crazy but to dead ringers i i first of all felt the remix thing um also, to your point, it's very heightened. It's it's like this like higher class, you know, uh, the bourgeoisie and kind of skewering them at times, but also skewering like the intelligentsia in particular, you know, the pretension of a lot of people in this world, um, specifically in the, the medical world. Versus- I was going to say the tech and medical world to where like, you know, one of the patron saints of Elliot and Beverly's future birthing clinic, because that's the big thing is that it flips the gender. Yep. They're no longer men. It's played by Rachel Weiss in a fucking performance. She's that's great. just on one. Like, yeah. I love her so much in this. She's incredible. She throws herself in to the same degree that Irons does, but just in a totally different way. Yeah. Like she makes the characters totally her own. A lot in the same way that you were talking about with like, and I think this is the right way to do it because it's the way that like Mads Mikkelsen is kind of like, well, I'm never going to be Anthony Hopkins and I'm never going to be fucking Brian Cox yeah. or whatever. So I just got to do my own thing and just make it so that nobody even thinks about them. They only think about my iteration of Hannibal Lecter. She does the same thing with Beverly and Elliot Mantle is that like by midway through the second episode, like I wasn't even thinking about Jeremy Irons. I was like, Oh, this, this is the fucking Rachel Vice show, man. And I'm all here. Yes. Um, and also it's like visually, I just think there's a lot. It's very Hannibal. Um, the set design for everything. I think the, uh, how much is set around food and meals feels very Hannibal. Again, Hannibal is going because he's a lot of dinner scenes. A lot of a lot of dinner scenes. Um, but I will say it's not as pulpy as Hannibal. Hannibal obviously has a propulsive thriller narrative, and you get less of that in Dead Ringers. This is a lot more. Again, to your point, dinner scenes like weekends away. There's not a lot. There's, there's obviously less murder, you know, and things like that. Actually, far happens. less. Far, like significantly less. Only one homeless woman bites it, really. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, honestly, this is the flip side to the narrative we were talking about at the beginning of the episode with the streaming glut and how everything is content this these days. And like, there's so much of it that it's almost impossible not only to keep up with in conversation, but just to keep up with period. Like you, there, we don't yeah. have enough hours in the day to watch all this shit. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is shit. And like a lot of it is junk, but at the same time, because people are just like, we need more content. We need more content. We need more content. Like stuff like dead ringers slips through the fucking system. 
and kind of infiltrates it because like, yeah, this isn't, it's genre E sort of uh, by the end in the same way that the original movie is. But like, this is art TV. Like this is very much a prestige art house melodrama right down to like the episodes that Sean Durkin directs. He directs them like a fucking Sean Durkin movie to where like there's all these long zooms and like pans around the room. The dinner scenes all create these kind of like looping audio uh, inserts to where like different conversations will be happening at different uh, volumes on the audio track and it's kind of like watching a Robert Altman movie totally. where like the conversations just overlap and it actually puts you in the moment of being at like that sort of dinner with a bunch of frankly like tech bro douchebags in the one scene and the, the yeah, second the episode. worst people the worst people ever it's literally like they they even say to introduce her character like the person who becomes her patron saint was is like a pharma kingpin who was responsible for the opioid crisis or yeah. at least a huge her chunk family of it. was yeah and like she even addresses it she's like are you going to talk to me about the opioid thing like we all know it and they're like because uh, uh. they're basically told to like the uh, the mantle twins in this are basically told to avoid that as like a talking point but then there's also like the other member of the family is like working on like transhuman biological technology, like a total Cronenberg. I wrote that. I was like, this is super Cronenberg. Yeah. Um, Biohacking. Biohacking. Yeah. There's like a Japanese video game artist, but they're all like shouting over one another in like different conversations. And you're trying to like keep up, but you also get the, the feeling it puts you in the seat uh, specifically Beverly, who's like the meeker of the two twins and how like it just completely overwhelms her while she's sitting there. And then Elliot is just antagonizing everybody the entire time and talking shit. Yeah. And she, cause she keeps cussing that one woman doesn't want her to. Oh, the, the, the Gwyneth Paltrow stand in. Yeah. That's totally supposed to oh, be Oh, I didn't think about that. And, yeah. and her husband she even so has fucking goop. weird. Yeah, and he has, she he has she has that super effeminate like cuck boy husband. Oh, he's so weird. Oh, uh, yeah, just horrible horrible person, but like he's always like apologizing and like like speaking for her and like redacting his words so that they fit her ideology, but it's all about how like dude, it also has like I can't believe you didn't pick up on the Gwyneth Paltrow thing because I of, just wasn't did you thinking. not get the Coldplay joke? Oh, I okay. Where they have the their fucking children sing a Coldplay song. Oh, this, the scientist, yeah. yeah, like, and it's like just basically signaling like that's Gwyneth, man, because she basically owns like a Goop style. Oh, she's fucking like, crazy. Self like medicating co- or like self help like company and stuff. It's just a dinner of the worst people ever, but it totally like immerses you in it in a way that like only a Sean Durkin art movie would. Well, it's so interesting. He's paired with Karin Kusama, you yeah. know, because the ep- episode two felt like the invitation to me in a lot of ways, you know, this like a, a dinner, uh, a dinner party with people who are all intellectual, but obviously with the invitation, they're in a cult, you know? Um, well, and also that game gets introduced where somebody's supposed to kidnap another person. Yeah, and all felt of that piece, you know, or even and Elliot fucks the Japanese video game guy. That seems so fucking hilarious where she's so weird. It's it's just like that's where I was like, okay, they're really doing a thing. 
because Karen Kusama directed episodes, I think one episode, like four. Yeah, three or four. Yeah. Um, and I, I've interviewed her before. She's a really fucking cool I mean, person. Too. She's awesome. Dude, she's a great interview. Like, she, we talked about like, Kurosawa. For both uh, Invitation and Destroyer. I've Invitation actually... was for me for okay. when I was with Consequence. And they're like, you interview? I'm like, fuck yeah, I want to interview her. She's like. Well, I mean, it was back when I worked for Draft House. So, like. And Invitation was a DHF title. That's right. And that kind of, because that was, that was at South by First, then Fantastic Fest. They bought it out of South by. That's right. And then they showed it there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, I was, it was, I mean, having her attached, it makes sense. It's that aesthetic of one of her films. You know, it's, it's also kind of lush in its own way. But I mean, the Jennifer Eel character is not a Cronenberg character in my mind. Like, she's almost like Sorkin like. She's fucking tremendous in I love movie. her in everything but she's great in this I'm also yeah. strangely attracted to her Oh me too like I love the, her in Zero Dark 30 The glasses the bitchy like boss lady Sit the fuck down Yeah where she just fucking owns these people the entire time I'm like mm, she's kind of hot Oh no she's amazing and then um I for, I'm sorry I forget her name Emily um, who plays her wife from The Deuce Oh yeah um she's fantastic um which leads to another great episode um, of visiting her family. Oh my God! With uh, patriarch Michael McKean. So the Southern Gothic. This is episode five, I believe, yeah. where the the sisters because they go to essentially deliver his daughter's baby. So they go to set up a new um a new spot for the the. It's basically another a franchise of their. Th- that's it. Yeah. And and they don't they are not aware that they're going to be birthed. That's her. it. Yeah, they, yeah. Well, she's going to be your first patient. And it's this really weird scene, and it's it's really bizarre because you have multiple twins that this guy has had, that his family has had. It obviously runs, and then this woman pregnant with fucking quadruplets. And to your earlier point about why now, I mean, the obvious answer is the abortion crisis in America. Sure. And, and they don't ignore it. They don't focus yeah, on it. But it's this not really a plot. Line but this, though. but it's not a plot line. But like I the, thought of that too. The theme is there, especially in this episode. But of, is that something a multinational, massive corporation is like? We're just gonna make an abortion drama. That doesn't seem like you know. <laughs> Fresh salt for the content minds. I mean, I, I don't, but again, this this show is alienating in any way you look at it. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, I'm kind of like, I, I don't know if this is the kind of thing that, it might be a reason they too, they didn't push it too hard. It's like, oh, this is kind of actually. What the fuck did we do? Subversive. But I mean, because like, there's a whole thing about, and this episode is so great because it gets to kind of like the birth of gynecology in America in particular, this story they tell about. You know that this this early OBGYN and a woman she had a um, because of vitamin D deficiency her mm-hmm. um, her pelvis was malformed and through thirty surgeries without anesthetic they basically figured it out and built modern gynecology and one of my favorite scenes in this entire fucking show is they go full Southern Gothic but Shirley Jackson haunted house. And this is the one that feels the most like Hannibal. It's so hyper stylized. This one out of all of them, you know, and the, the shots of the family and they're kind of like, it looks like a painting, you know, right. everything. Everything's um, in these dark, almost like Robert Richardson yep. uh, style, like shadows. Yeah. And, and she goes, to, she's called, she hears crying and she goes down to the, this like basement and meets like the ghost of the woman this guy was talking about. And she was a slave. And, she does this amazing, almost like one woman show for like six minutes, 
telling this narrative of like I basically who has autonomy and you all use my story for your purposes but like I was a slave I had no choice and it just kind of like takes it seems like that's like the core of the whole show in a way that underneath what they're doing too is like it's all about this well my take on this is kind of similar to what you were talking about with the whole idea of like like an artist stealing from these two other brilliant people and making it into his art. This feels like a reclamation to where the first movie and the book and the, like the actual real life dudes, they're dudes. Like they're, they're men who work on women and became famous because of their expertise for getting women pregnant and working on their lady parts when they are in fact men equipped with penises. This is a show about women who are trying to legitimately help women and push women's medicine forward, not just exploit it for their own game and, and fame. Well, one of them is, well, one of them is, but I still think that she has skin in the game as a woman. And she's always also tried like her whole motivating factor at first. We always have to remember is getting her sister pregnant because her sister is basically barren and can't carry children there. It is rooted in genuine human emotion. And I think helping a fellow woman achieve the dream that they've always wanted. Like, I think you, you can always thread that needle through the entire show here. This feels like a very explicit, like, here was a man who pioneered the earliest days of gynecological medicine, but he did so by exploiting women, yeah. you know, and this is them kind of taking it back. It's the same way to, to, again, to go back to the artistry question that you asked. I like that the way that this version of the story mutates that to where again, in the Cronenberg original, it's Stephen Lack, a male artist taking and creating these art sculptures out of these tools to work on mutant women that these actual gynecological geniuses brought to him in the dead ringer show. It's a woman again and taking these things to your point that have become exploitive because they've, they've uh, compromised their values by basically being invested in by this like opioid kingpin. They're franchising their shit out like McDonald's. It is all about like bringing what started as like a well-intentioned advancement in, in women's medicine became exploited and became something for the bottom line for this major corporation. Like they are compromised in every step of the way of achieving their goal. But Poppy Lou's character. Yeah. Is now borrowing all these little pieces from them, but using it to tell her mother's story who died in childbirth and to actually reconnect individuals who see this now because of the way that these people have exploited it for their own fame and gain and mm. everything that she's bringing it back to that so human actually about, element yeah. to where it's actually about the women on the table who are giving birth and sometimes giving their life to actually bring a new life into the world. Like dead ringers. The series is a very like feminist minded work of art and it's pretty interesting how it mutates the original story to kind of fit its end goals that is interesting too because that scene of of poppy lou greta on the table playing her mother and this kind of like live art piece at the gallery 
looks very similar to the woman who dies early. The woman that exactly. the, re- the reason they actually end up building the Mansell Institute is at the at the hospital. Beverly is very angered that they're so busy and the women are kind of mistreated that a woman says, "I have pain in my abdomen," and she fucking bleeds out and dies, like she hemorrhages. And and Beverly's like, "No, you should check look at this," and they're tired of that. They're tired of women being at the center, or they, the whole theme of the show, too, she keeps saying is pregnancy is not a disease. It shouldn't be in a hospital. Yeah, it you shouldn't know? be in a hospital. It should be treated as, like, the human miracle that it yes. really is. But it's also, like, one of the original tragedies was a mother giving or giving her life, you know, during birth, like, dating all the way back to, like, caveman times. Yeah. And that's kind of what the art exhibit becomes is that it's literally about how, like, this great tragedy has echoed through time and affected so many lives and taken so many women that even when these two originally noble-minded genius doctors set themselves in their their great minds to reclaiming women's medicine it still gets exploited by another woman i might add just um, by capitalism by capitalism but by a woman who doesn't give a fuck about any of that and it's just like i don't care if people die i don't care if i put out poison under the streets it's just I make money. That's what fuels, you know, the world, not humanism. It's just, it's a really tremendous six hour actor showcase that probably shouldn't exist at all, but I'm totally glad it does. No, me too. And it was, it's, it's cool to like have a companion piece to the film too, because they're so different. You know, I watched them both back to back and I didn't feel like I was rewatching the same story at all. I didn't feel like, okay, I just, Versus some remakes or remixes. Like, dude, sure. I, I just, I've already been in this world, but they're so different. And it's cool to see another artist play in the same sandbox as Cronenberg, but like, it's not a Cronenberg show at all. There's, there's elements that are Cronenbergian. It calls back to it, but it's doing its own thing. Well, and especially like, I mean, and for me, the style of the science and everything feels like an Alex Garland film. It feels very like Ex Machina to me. That's fair. Like that kind of view of science. Again, it's even colder than Cronenberg, you know? Well, and all his movies are also very women-centric. Yes. Like, they're all about, like, you know, Alicia Viscander in, in Ex Machina. Melly um, Portman in Annihilation. Jesse Buck. Well, the whole squad of basically women Oh, yeah, sorry. I'm in thinking Annihilation, in, but yeah, yeah specifically Jason Natalie Lee and, yeah. Portman. Um, but then also Jesse Buckley in Men. Yeah. Men, like... That's this is his bread and butter, man, for better or worse, because it doesn't always work for everybody. I really liked men. I know I you, did not. You did not. <laughs> uh, but I love Annihilation. Uh, I don't love uh, Ex Machina. That's the one of his that everybody's a huge fan of that I've just never really, you know, took a shine to. I think Donald Gleason. I like him, but I don't. He thinks he's miscast in that movie. Um, that's a big issue for me. Um, but and it's also his first feature that he directed, and you can kind of tell Annihilation's a huge jump forward for him, like in every way. Also, basically, like fucking sat on and shat out by Paramount. Like they did, had wanted no part of that movie. Well, and it's and it's it's pretty different from the book. The book's phenomenal too, but like they're both special in their own way. And it's actually one of my favorite movies of that year. I, I cannot, I oh, cannot great. say how much I love Annihilation. Well, Martin, this has been great. Another chance to talk about my boy, David Cronenberg. Yeah, if you hear this, David, we love you. We know you're listening <laughs> because you're such an avid podcast guy. He's, yeah.
but we think you're freaking great. No, I, it's always good to talk Cronenberg with you, and I'm excited for another one of our favorite filmmakers. Yeah, uh, we're coming up on the season finale now, and it's going to revolve around basically the patron saint of the show, who is Paul fucking Schrader. Cannot wait. He has a new God's Loneliest Man movie coming out in Master Gardener. Um, and then, so we're going to basically cover his whole run of sad sack fucking losers from like American gigolo to light sleeper hell to taxi driver all the way up to the card counter first reformed and now master gardener. But you'll have to stay tuned next time to secret handshake to hear all that Schrader talk. See you next time. Um, real quick, 
Julian Sands or Billy Drago? Which one? Which one would you you prefer? In I a, wish I in could a, in a movie. I wish I could have a third, like Julian Sands, Billy Drago, and like someone else for fuck Mary Kill, fuck Mary Kill, Julian Sands, Billy Drago. Who would be like a third? Daniel Baldwin, like hench, <laughs> not quite, but like you know what I'm saying. Like they have a similar type. They're kind of weaselly. 80s Stellan Skarsgård. He's so sweaty in um, uh, Hunt for October. He's yeah. like so sweaty in that movie. Trying to, oh, what about the guy, the big Ophi guy from Die Hard? The, oh, the guy who works the desk or, 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 or the, Vigo. Vigo. Vigo from uh, Ghostbusters 2? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So fuck, Mary kill. Julian Sands, Billy Drago, and Vigo from Ghostbusters 2. I'd marry Vigo. I'd fuck the shit out of Julian Sands, and I would kill Billy Drago. And I love Billy Drago. I'm glad we cleared that up. Yeah.